0: Father, we thank you for the word of hope that we have today. Father, may you speak through my very imperfect and feeble lips to those that you have gathered alongside of us today so that we may be renewed, that we may be strengthened, that we may be filled with joy, at the power of your word and your spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we're going to be looking at John chapter 11, verses 1 through 45. Last couple weeks we've been in, in John, and because it is such a long passage, we're going to be sort of We're not going to read the whole thing first, but we're going to sort of take it piece by piece as we move through uh, the message. It is uh, no secret that we live in a culture that does everything it can to pretend that death doesn't exist. At least it doesn't seem to exist for me. We avoid it and we do everything we can to even act like it's normal. We hear platitudes in movies and from experts that quote, death is a natural part of the life cycle. It is the circle of life after all. We're even told by some to try and find beauty in death. There was an Oscar-winning movie a number of years ago called American Beauty that tried to do that very thing. but then something like what we have experienced over the last few weeks hits us then a virus that is seemingly unpredictable and we just can't really know what is going to happen comes at us and suddenly the the prospect of sickness and death is not so easily ignored and not so far removed suddenly there is a tendency to panic and to fear. Suddenly there are runs on toilet paper and there's lots of wondering about what will happen if we or someone we love comes down with the illness ourselves. And in times like this, cliches like death being natural and the circle of life and all of that just isn't so Instagrammable anymore. Nevertheless, it's our natural tendency, especially in the modern West, to minimize, diminish, pretend that it's not coming. On the other hand, Jesus takes a totally different tack when it comes to death and suffering. You will never hear Jesus utter the words, this is a natural part of the life cycle. No, as a matter of fact, you are going to hear Jesus talk about death in the harshest terms possible because Jesus sees death as his enemy. As a matter of fact, it's not too strong to say the Son of God, Jesus Christ, hates with the holiest of hatreds, hates suffering and death. And because... He hates death. The passage before us in John chapter 11 is going to show us how he confronts this great enemy. And yet what we'll see from the very beginning is Jesus doesn't confront it necessarily the way we might think. The first way we see Jesus confront death is actually, well, pretty unpredictably. It doesn't maybe even make a whole lot of sense to us. To pick you up to speed on the passage, John tells us that Jesus was sent for by his friends Martha and Mary to let him know that their brother Lazarus was very ill. It was clear that this sickness was not just the common cold, but rather something very serious. And the sisters are hoping that by sending messengers to Jesus to let him know that that his good friend is indeed this ill, that Jesus will do what he's done for so many others before, that he will, in fact, come in time to bring healing. After all, Jesus had done it so often. Indeed, if I was a betting man, and I was to predict what we'd read next in our passage, I would predict that we'd read something like, this is the Eric paraphrase, and Jesus, immediately sensing the urgency, hopped to it, grabbed his disciples, and immediately headed to Bethany so that he could bring healing to Lazarus. But that's not what we read. Instead, when we get to verse 4, we read this. When Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And then there's this very interesting sentence, or a couple of sentences right after it. It says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so, notice the purpose clause there, because he loved them, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now let's just stop there for a second. Let's not pass that over too quickly. Jesus you are saying that your great friend's terrible sickness is somehow for the glory of God Jesus I don't know that I'm following you here you're deciding to literally wait two extra days because you love him I don't think you understand no I, I, I mean this with the greatest amount of respect Jesus I I just am not sure you're getting the seriousness of the situation. He's sick right now. He's dying right now. Why are you waiting? Trust me, it's for the glory of God, Jesus says. And I can hear a disciple saying, yeah, I get it, okay, but, but we worship you plenty right now. I mean, if you just showed up and did that whole, you know, mud and spit thing you did with that blind guy in a couple chapters ago, we worship you plenty, I promise. That'd be for the glory of God too. But Jesus does not budge. He does wait two more days. And by the time the two days are up, Lazarus is gone. As if that wasn't enough, Jesus goes on to make yet another cryptic statement in verse 14 and 15. It says, Jesus said to his disciples, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I am glad I was not there. So that you may believe, but let us go to him. What on earth is going on here? Well, I think what's going on here with Jesus's friends, Mary and Martha, with his disciples, and with you and I this morning, is that we are being forced to accept possibly the most upsetting and difficult thing about suffering and death that we face. We see the pain and the anguish that someone is going through like Mary and Martha, we call out for Jesus to help, let's just be real here, instead of coming to the rescue when we think he should or how we think he should, he doesn't seem to do it at all. Martha and Mary, and I'm sure even the disciples must have had a thought bubbling around in their head somewhere. Does he really even care? Why isn't he coming? Have you ever been there? Let me switch gears for a second. And then, well, let me switch gears with a little bit of an illustration. It's a lighter illustration, but I think it will serve to make a broader point in regard to these questions that pop up when Jesus seems to wait an extra couple days when we ask for help. It's about a 20-something girl, and for that matter, her boyfriend. 20-something girlfriend was convinced her boyfriend uh, had forgotten all about the big day they had planned together. He was supposed to be over at her apartment in the morning, but much to her frustration, he didn't arrive on time. Not only that, as time went by, she received no phone call, no update, no apology, no nothing. And after hours went by with no communication from her boyfriend, she was understandably upset. She felt uncared for and taken advantage of. And so if there was one thing she was certain of, it was when her boyfriend finally did stroll in, she was gonna let him know she was not particularly happy with him. Well, indeed, eventually the boyfriend did knock at the door, and predictably, she opened the door and immediately turned her back, saying no words. The boyfriend knew he was in really hot water, but the boyfriend also knew something that she did not. He knew that the reason he hadn't called or communicated or updated her was because Well, that morning, he was waiting for the final touches to be put on her engagement ring, and it just ended up lasting longer than he had anticipated. And so the reason why the boyfriend didn't call is because the boyfriend was too afraid that he might accidentally spill the secret. But the boyfriend could tell that his girl was quite upset. He knew he had to do something quick before a fight started, and so So he he followed her quickly into her room, and he called out, Melissa? And with her back turned to him still, she said, What? And this time the boyfriend got down on one knee and said, Melissa, will you marry me? And suddenly, suddenly, all was understood. The seeming abandonment made sense. And my girlfriend, Missy, turned and said with the biggest smile possible on her face, love. And that is the day Missy and I were engaged. But you see, the questions that she had lingering in her mind were completely understandable because she just she didn't have all the information I had at the moment and so too in our relationship with God when the questions come up we are called to believe to trust somehow that Jesus does know why he acts when he does We are called to believe, even when we suffer and struggle in this life, that what may seem totally unpredictable and and completely misguided to us is somehow perfectly known to him. That yes, even when he seems absent, he is still actively confronting death. So the first way we see Jesus often confront death, and certainly in this passage, is unpredictably. The second way Jesus confronts death in our passages, or in our passages, with promises. So we put ourselves in the shoes of Martha and Mary. Lazarus has now been dead for four days. In Jewish thought, of course, when someone was dead for that long, that meant that there was literally no chance of them coming back in the collective mindset. Lazarus is indeed really dead. And everyone in the community and outside of the community knows that to be the case, and so they gathered around Martha and Mary to grieve with them. And here comes Jesus as we pick up the story in verse 20. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And by the way, what a great statement of faith on Martha's part. Verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again on the resurrection on the last day. She's expressing the common Jewish idea that yes, there will be a resurrection, but it's going to be one big resurrection at the very end of time. And Jesus said to her, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And now suddenly, the reason for Jesus' waiting begins to become clearer. No, he didn't wait around for no reason. It wasn't because he didn't care, and it wasn't because he was too busy finishing up a game of chess with his disciples. No, it was because he was going to do something for them that seemed just too good to be true. In fact, he was going to use this event to strengthen everyone's faith. He does this now to Martha by promising to her, And indeed, the same thing is done for you and I. Jesus gives us promises to hang on to, to give us hope and to build faith in us. Jesus promises right here that he will raise Lazarus from the dead and he promises that to all who believe in him, you and me, that though we die, yet shall we live. Jesus promises he's gonna right all the wrongs. He's gonna fix all the problems. And so we can say with the Apostle Paul from the book of Romans, for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Yes, this is the cry of faith that doesn't see everything yet, doesn't understand everything yet, but still says, I believe it. I trust it. I'm depending on you, God, that you know what you're doing. And when you promise that you're going to bring life out of this, I'll believe it. The third way that Jesus confronts death in our passage. Even though he's at this point promised he's going to raise Lazarus to new life, I love this so much. Jesus doesn't immediately just do that, Jesus takes the time to confront death with empathy towards those who are affected by it. It's one of my favorite passages in the entire Bible, what we're about to read here in verse 28. Martha went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And When the Jews were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, My brother would not have died. She repeats in her heartbreak the same words that Martha had said to Jesus. Mary is crying out, it wasn't supposed to be like this. You're able to prevent this. And Mary, remember, she doesn't know what Martha's been promised yet. She doesn't have all the information yet. And her heart cries out, it's not supposed to be like this. I remember it was Christmas Day 2006 when my family got the call. My Uncle Bob had been in the hospital for a few weeks, and it was now clear that his condition was deteriorating. Up till that time, I had been studying in uh, Minnesota, in Fergus Falls, at the seminary, and... And it had just come down a couple days prior for the holidays, so so I hadn't really been a part of any of the turmoil that my family was going through firsthand as my uncle continued to get worse and worse. Frankly, it was all sort of a shock to us because my uncle was in great health. He was only in his uh, young 50s. I mean, he had a, a great family, had a great job, great career. Everything seemed to be going well for him and suddenly he was diagnosed with a very aggressive form of cancer. And three weeks later, we've gotten the call from the hospital that we need to come and say our goodbyes. So me, my brother, my father loaded up into the car. We went and picked up my grandparents, my Uncle Bob's parents. And in so many words, we tried to tell them on the way there that this would be the last time they saw Bob alive. I remember gathering around Bob's bed one by one, watching my grandfather and my grandmother kiss their son goodbye. We walked out of the hospital in kind of a fog, just a daze. No one could believe what had happened. For minutes, everyone was speechless. And then finally, my my grandma grabbed me and said, Eric, it's not supposed to be like this. It's not supposed to be like this. Now, I'd like to tell you that the training I had gotten to be a pastor prepared me for that moment, and I was able to give her a beautifully eloquent response to her pain. In truth, there is really no beautifully eloquent response to death. All I could do was sort of become her grandson again and simply say, you're right, Grandma. It's not supposed to be like this. She was right. Disease and virus and death is not why God created this world. This world has been corrupted from what God designed it to be. It was not supposed to be like this. Jesus agrees in the strongest tone possible. John says, When Jesus saw Mary weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. Jesus was deeply moved in spirit. It literally means in Greek to snort as an expression of anger, to be moved with the deepest possible emotions, to even express violent displeasure. We're told that Jesus was greatly troubled. It literally means he could have been shaking so disturbed that he couldn't control his body from moving. And we're told even though Jesus knows exactly what he's going to do, he knows the end of the story that doesn't prevent him from sitting with us in the midst of of the pain and letting the tears out. Jesus weeps. Again, in Greek, it can literally be translated, burst into tears. The God that you and I serve is the God who sits with us in the midst of it, even though he knows the end and he promises the end and he tells us to believe that in the end it's going to work out, he still understands and, and suffers alongside of us. He still empathizes with his people and the pain that sin and death has brought upon the world. And so finally, we come to the big moment where everything makes sense. Jesus confronts death with life. In verse 38 we're told jesus came to where death was at to the tomb he has some people remove the stone that covered the tomb at this point it appears martha still is a little fuzzy on what's going to happen because she literally takes the moment to warn him lord by this time there will be an odor for he has been dead for four days are you sure you know what you're doing And Jesus reminds her again, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Jesus takes a moment to pray to his father. And then it happens. Lazarus, come out. At the command of the Son of God's mighty word, the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. And the same thing is, will happen to you, Christian. It's a guarantee. It's a guarantee. Jesus' word applies to you at death as well. I love how he calls Lazarus by name. Lazarus, come out. Eric, come out. Vinny, come out. That's the truth that you have waiting for you, Christian. As I saw my uncle in the hospital bed that night, I thought so much about the fact and was so comforted by the fact that just a little bit before he had gone into the hospital, even before he was diagnosed with this cancer, suddenly one day, my uncle shows up to a family party with this very large cross around his neck. Now my, my uncle was not into jewelry and my uncle was certainly not a Christian and here he is wearing this beautiful cross. And sure enough, we come to find out he had just converted to Christ. I remember thinking as he went into the hospital, him telling his wife and children, I'm fine. If the Lord decides to take me, I know whose hands I'm in. I'm ready to go. And so I am convinced, utterly confident, that that day when we said goodbye, Jesus said to Bob, come out. Unbind him and let him go, angelic host. He's no longer bound to those Clothes of bondage and sickness and tears and difficulties and suffering and death. No, 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 no. That doesn't happen in my kingdom. No more of the old burial clothes there. But only the new clothes of the righteousness of Jesus Christ forever and ever given to those who are his saints. And why can Jesus do this? Because Jesus has defeated the grave for us. He alone has the power over death and hell. Because he alone was crushed on the cross for our sins, but rose again from the dead for good, ascended to the right hand of the Father in victory, never to be bound to the grave again. And so no matter what we're facing, no matter how hard it may get, no matter what suffering may come, take it from one who suffered a lot, the Apostle Paul, we can look death in the face, we can look suffering in the face, and we can say in the final analysis, we can even mock this great enemy of ours. As much as we hate it, we can mock it. And say, with the Apostle Paul, as he says in 1 Corinthians 15, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? You hear the taunt, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? You don't got anything on me now. I'm free, I have hope for eternal life, and that's what I'm banking my life on. Just as God did for Lazarus, he will do for me, and that is enough. That is enough. And that is enough for you to face whatever struggle and challenge and difficulty may come your way. Death is not the final, it's not the final answer, but life is for you who believe. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that because of your grace to us, we don't have to cower in fear, we don't have to be afraid, but we can confidently face the difficulties, sufferings, even our last breath with hope. We can face these things with confidence, knowing that our final destiny is a place where none of those things will ever plague us again. And so in humble dependence, Father, we pray the prayer that our Savior gave us with one voice. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil